0: When you look at what elephants under 30 die of in North America, EHV is the leading cause of of death in these elephants.
1: Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my Ra Safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to an episode that's been a long time in the making of the Ra Safari podcast. I am really stoked about today's episode, y'all, and that is for a bunch of reasons. This this episode has a story behind it, okay? So um, this all started back when I first started doing Zoo News and early on started talking about the deaths of elephants uh, in the um, captive population, but then also in the wild uh, from a disease known as EEHV, the elephant endotheliotropic herpes virus. I think I said that right. Anyway, we'll find out when we get to the episode. Um, it's, it's a disease that is really problematic and has huge consequences for, like I said, both the captive and wild elephant population. And uh, this is true of African and Asian elephants so um i started reporting on this and started finding out that it was a problem and way back in june carrie kirkpatrick one of the huge supporters of the pod who is always sending me stuff for zoo news reached out and said hey why not do an episode on eehv and that seemed like a good idea but i really wasn't entirely sure what approach to take Then a few other people reached out as I would do different stories on zoo news about the disease, saying that they wanted more information on it. So, this idea was in the back of my head, but um, I wasn't sure what to do until I remembered our friends at the Wild Animal Health Fund. I just had the feeling that the Wild Animal Health Fund had probably helped fund some studies into EEHV, and uh, it turned out that I was correct. Uh, So, I reached out to my friend Caroline Harrison previously if you've listened to the last episode from there caroline yawn but um she got married congrats caroline anyway and uh sorry i'm a dork i can't help it and i'm really happy for her but anyway um and she reached out and was able to get me in touch with today's guest and y'all what a guest it is Today, I am bringing you an interview with Dr. Lauren Howard, the Associate Director of Veterinary Services at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. So already, you know I'm excited because, um, duh, it's the the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. I love it there so much. So this episode is split up pretty interestingly. For about the first half hour, we talk about Dr. Howard's career. We talk about how she got to where she is, what that looks like now, and we even Talk about a couple of interesting veterinary cases that have happened at the wildlife park, including a discussion of Mitsumi, the uh, giraffe who needed braces on her legs. So that's a lot of fun. And then we transition to going into a deep dive on what EEHV is, what is currently suggested for how to treat it, what steps are being taken to eradicate this disease, what the status of vaccines are, all that good stuff. We go deep, y'all. After this episode, you will have a wonderful understanding of EEHV, what it looks like now, and what hopefully the future is going to look like With this one. So, yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff in here, and I'm really excited to share it with you all. But first, a quick reminder to hit subscribe and make sure you don't miss any episodes. Leave ratings and reviews as they do help people find the podcast. And make sure you're following along at Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and on Twitter, and uh, Rossafari Pod at TikTok. All right. Let's get to it. It's time to talk about E.E.H.V. with Dr. Lauren Howard of the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. All right. So why don't we start off by you telling me who you are, where you work and what you do there? All right.
0: Uh, My name is Lauren Howard. I'm the director of veterinary services at the San Diego zoo safari park. And now the San Diego zoo safari park is part of our larger conservation organization called the San Diego zoo wildlife Alliance. We are a conservation organization with two front doors, um, the San Diego zoo being one of them and the safari park being the other. So as the director here, I care for a department of about 30 amazing uh, zoo professionals, including veterinarians, uh, Keepers, or we call them wildlife care specialists here at the park, um, registered veterinary technicians, administrative people, um, wildlife health registrar records, that kind of thing. Um, so, my job is um, to remove roadblocks and set them up for success to care for the 5,000 or so animals that call the Safari Park home.
1: Amazing. I love that. I'm really excited to have you on the pod. Um, so, let's start off by talking about you. We have a specific goal for this episode and we'll get there, but, um, let, let's talk about you. How did you get to this incredibly prestigious, uh, position?
0: How did I get here? Um, I feel exceptionally fortunate to be in the position I am in. Um, I've been a veterinarian since I graduated in 2000. So I've been a veterinarian for a little over 22 years. Um, and I got here through, a slightly planned, slightly circuitous and throw in a lot of, um, coincidence and good luck. Um, so, um, I'm, I'm, I work very hard and I'm very proud of what I've accomplished. So, um, and it's a great opportunity to be able to be here and use the skills I've learned to help, um, care for our animals and, and set others up for success. So, um, yeah, so I graduated from vet school in 2000. I went to Virginia, Maryland, which is on the Virginia Tech campus. It's a Beautiful campus and a wonderful school. Um, It wasn't very heavy on exotics or zoo medicine. Um, So like many up-and-coming zoo veterinarians, I I had to make my um, zoo opportunities in the summer, um, most often unpaid, like a lot of us at that time. Hopefully that's ending. Um, But I guess if you go back further, how I ended up in vet school, um, I... I wouldn't say I always wanted to be a veterinarian, actually. Um, I did prefer pet sitting to babysitting when I was at that 15-year-old age where that's the main money you can make. Um, but um, when, and I was, became very interested in environmental consciousness, um, Earth Day 92, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and I actually got very interested in um, um, marine biology and um marine marine science. Um that was kind of that was what I went to undergrad for. Um, and then somewhere along in my undergrad years at the University of Miami, which is great for marine science biology, I actually recognized it was the biology I liked a lot better than the marine science. I didn't really like being out in boats um, or seaweed uh, or fish, to be honest. Um, so I I went back to the biology side and I, I thought really hard about what could I do with a bio degree or some kind of professional degree and have the greatest impact on animals and conservation. And that's where, where veterinary medicine came in. Um, and when I was in high school, I had the great fortune to spend a little bit of time with the veterinary team at the national zoo in DC, which is my zoo. I grew up near, um, because of my father and, and his work in biomedical biomedical engineering. Um, so when I was at this crossroads in, in college, um, I thought back to seeing Dr. Bush and the other um, veterinary team at the National Zoo and what they did, and I realized that's the way I can really impact individual animals as well as the broader conservation um, goals you know, that we needed to achieve to keep the planet healthy. Um, so I did a pivot in undergrad and was able to get all my um, requisites in to be able to apply for veterinary school. Um, so, so yeah. And, uh, when I was in veterinary school, I have, you have two summers, um, to do what you want. Um, because after your third year, it rolls right into your fourth year. So you don't get a summer off. So I spent my first summer as a unpaid intern, um, in the reproductive sciences lab here at the San Diego zoo, um, with Dr. Barbara Durant. Um, she, I cold lettered her. We, we wrote letters back in those days and, uh, <laughs> She um, she didn't have a paid position, but she said she'd be happy to take me on. So I lived off credit cards all summer, and um, I lived in a closet in a boarding house to save money. It was a large closet, but it was still a closet. Um, and I spent every day with Dr. Durant and her team evaluating um, semen quality, doing a lot of s- cell counts and sperm counts, helping with sample collection, did a little study on cryopreservation, that kind of thing. Um, so that opened my eyes to both all the different aspects of zoo medicine, as well as the the magic of San Diego. Um, and I kind of got hooked. Um, I ended up getting a research project funded for the following year. So I came back and worked with the pathology department. So I spent two summers in San Diego as, as we say, a snot nose vet student, um, <laughs> learning a ton and interacting with the veterinarians, um, not actually doing a lot of clinical medicine, but at least seeing seeing what they were doing. So that kind of solidified yeah, I want to do this. I want to be, be a zoo
1: veterinarian. So. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, to get your first and second, you know, internships at the San Diego zoo is ridiculous. Um, that's, that's very, very cool. Uh, did you know at the time how special and unique that was?
0: Um, I, I, I did realize how lucky I was. I mean, at the, at the time, most of my friends were working in stables or working at small animal hospitals they were actually making money.
1: <laughs>
0: um, but um, but then when I came here, I met a cohort of other interns doing similar projects, and they were from all over the world. I mean, I'm actually a good friend of mine um, that I'm still in touch with. He He's the general curator at the Rotterdam Zoo in the Netherlands, and he was doing cheetah observations while I was doing pathology. Um, so it was nice to be among a small group of like-minded individuals, but I think at the end of those summers... When I got back and really a set, like, really took in what what I did and what I was able to learn, it was it it felt it felt pretty amazing. Um, so um, so after my after I finished vet school, I did a small animal internship in New Jersey. It was a a very busy private practice that saw both um, walk in the door vaccine appointments all the way to you know the triage emergencies that kind of thing. Learned a ton. Um, Did my first overnight in tears, working on dogs with the text telling me how to fix it, um, that kind of thing. So I learned a lot. And then I was very fortunate to get um, uh, selected as the the first resident through the new training program that San Diego partnered with UC Davis for. Um, So I got accepted into that um, residency in 2001. So I came back to San Diego um and i i got to do so zoo residencies are few and far between at that point there were like eight now i think there's in 20 years i think it's only doubled to about 15 compared to other specialty residencies where there's hundreds of them um it's really hard to learn this stuff because you could go a year and you might not see a sick anteater and then you see a sick anteater and you have to figure out do i treat it like a dog or a cat or a cow you know kind of thing um, so I had three amazing years of, of learning the basics of zoo medicine, learning how to take in a lot of input and make decisions, um, learning how to prioritize my time, learning how to communicate um, from technicians and keepers to fellow veterinarians, up to curators um, at all different levels and with different levels of jargon. Um, and it was great. Um, we I, I brought my husband along. He was a fiance then. Um, he's a dog and cat vet. Um, nice. So he had... Yeah, we had three and a half great years in, in the residency program in San Diego. Um, and then the problem with the residency program is when it ends, they make you leave. <laughs> um, so I, I left and I, I took on a job as a, a, a clinical veterinarian at the Houston Zoo. Um, and I spent 11 amazing years there. And that's where I got involved in the EHB work and a lot of other really, really impactful work that I'm very proud of. Um, And then about six years ago, um, a leadership position opened up here at the Safari Park, and um, I couldn't say no. Um, I keep coming back here, and um, I'm hoping I'm here to stay at this point because it's a tremendous organization. Um, You've seen the facility. Our our hospital here is top-notch, and it's really the people that really are the icing on the cake. They're amazing, committed, experienced, skilled zoo professionals um, who who we all have the same same
1: goal in mind so it's great That's awesome. Yeah, I um whenever anybody asks me my favorite zoo, it's always the San Diego Zoo. I shouldn't be biased because, you know, I I do this podcast at all of the AZA zoos that I can. But um, you know, it's San Diego and and the Safari Park is is up there as well. Y'all just don't have enough, you know, red pandas and binturongs for me. But um, <laughs> but I just I the the facilities are incredible, the people are incredible, the staff is incredible. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to have Rick Schwartz and Nikki Boyd on and oh, they're yeah, just yeah. amazing humans and now to mm-hmm. have you on is great. Um, yeah, last last year I started my year doing Two months out in uh, L.A. playing shows out in L.A. and um, where I was in Los Angeles, it was actually almost easier because of traffic to get down to San Diego or Escondido than it was Mm -hmm. to get to uh, the L.A. zoo even. So I got a membership out there and I was down there a couple times every week and it was the best. It was just just the best. Um I want to thank you for for saying something before we move on here. Um you you mentioned that you, you know, got where you are because you put in hard work and you're proud of what you did. And I just want to thank you for saying that because I think so many people nowadays are like, "Oh, I'm so lucky. I I got so lucky." And like there's always luck involved in what we do. But I I think so many people feel the need to sell themselves short nowadays, that it was kind of cool to hear you just be like, I worked my butt off. I found a thing I wanted to do and I did it and I'm proud of it. And I think people need to hear that more, honestly.
0: Um, It's funny because I almost didn't say that. Like, I recognize veterinarians as a profession and then there's some stuff about women and imposter syndrome, which I'm not sure I buy in, but maybe Um, Where you feel like you have to constantly sell yourself short Um, and having um, I have a 15 year old daughter and a 13 year old son and I'm, I'm trying really hard by deed and by what I say to teach them you know, that it's okay to, to work hard and be proud of yourself and to have confidence in yourself. So thank you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have an eight year old son and I constantly need to remind myself of the same thing because we're both, like I said, we're both in industries where it's easy to sell yourself short and just be like, Oh, thank you for letting me do work which is a dumb attitude (laughs) even if it's work that we love but um anyway so all right so tell me a little bit about what your current job is and like do you actually still get to like you know cut open animals and stuff or do you do you miss that (laughs) if you don't like tell tell me about your current position more
0: sure so like i said i'm the director of a department about 30 folks our our department is mirrored down at the San Diego Zoo. There's a director and another group of about 30 people. Um, so we between us, we're like the largest veterinary group in the country, possibly the world. I don't know about Singapore. They've got a lot of folks. Um, but um, so, yeah, so my position has evolved. Um, like everything, COVID's kind of impacted things and changed things. Um, I, since my six years here... Um, I have done fewer clinical days. Um, and most recently we've we've had a lot of new people learning up. So I've actually taken a step back and, and let them kind of take the wheel. Um, but in in general, um, I I commit to about one to four clinical days, up to one to four clinical days a month. Um, so clinical day um, here at the Safari Park, um, we have veterinary, a veterinary team here seven days a week. Um, we have folks who work Sunday through Thursday and folks who work Tuesday through Saturday. Um, so we do procedures every day. Um, we start our day, um, the The keepers get here at 6, the techs get here at 6.15, the vets filter in at different times. Um, and by 7.15, we're ready to go. We do a morning hospital rounds. And then at 7.30, the curators and managers join us and we talk about what, what tomorrow looks like and what today looks like. And then we go out and we do... Um, care for animals pretty much from like 8.30 to about two o'clock. Um, we're an early group here. Um, some folks are on 10 hours day, so they're later, but most of the care staff is on eight hour days. Um, and then that afternoon slot is filled with records and communications and, and meetings and protocols. Um, so our typical day, um, if you're familiar with the safari park, we have two thirds or three quarters of our patients are ungulates or ruminants um, and some horses. Uh, hoved things. So we do a lot of uh, intensive care and advanced diagnostics on ruminants, which is pretty rare in the zoo world. Um, And it does take a special skill set. It takes more people because they're bigger animals. Um, So sometimes it's just getting an, an anesthetic dart into an animal out in our large field habitats Um, Because that animal is getting older, we don't want him to start breeding his mom and sisters. It's time for him to go start another herd somewhere else. Um, So it's a really simple, pull him out of the field, make sure he's healthy, and send him to his forever home. Or we might have an animal in the field that's injured or having a problem that will anesthetize him and bring him to the hospital for a diagnostic exam. And a lot of our animals who aren't in those big field habitats, they can be trailered here, just like you trailer a horse to an equine clinic. Um, and they come here. We have we have we're one of the handful of zoos in the country that have a computed tomography or CT. Um, so that's really advanced our medicine. We of course have X rays and ultrasound and endoscopy. Um, and then this, the, you can't de- detract from the physical exam and the veterinary skills of just getting your hands on an animal and, and learning and solving the puzzle of what's making it not feel well and and what can we do to fix that. Um, so I do, I do still perform anesthesia on animals. We do, we do surgeries. If it's a major surgery, um, we will a- uh, invite a veterinary surgeon to come in and assist us. There's like equine colics. No one wants to touch that unless you've had a lot of experience. Uh, we work with ophthalmologists and cardiologists and, and all kinds of amazing folks. And we're really lucky to have the support in our veterinary community. Um, people will drop everything if one of our animals needs help and we really appreciate it. Um, so if I'm on clinics, that's what my day is like. If I'm not, um, I I, I kind of split my time between caring for the folks in our department and then representing our department to the rest of the organization. I work closely with the directors of guest services and retail and facilities and all those people that keep the whole organization moving and the people that are, are bringing um, money in through the, the, t- the front gate and through... Um, experiences and tours uh, which directly feeds our conservation mission as well as the day-to-day care for our animals Um, so and our organization is so inspired and proud of of what our department does I'm very popular at department (laughs) meetings and all kinds of things um, because everyone wants to hear about what the CT of the platypus look like um, and stuff like that so it's a great opportunity we, we talk a lot here about how even if you're selling a soda, you're doing it for conservation. And I see it as one of our, our roles is to make sure those people who are selling sodas realize how important their jobs are. And, hey, why don't you come see the hospital and you know, see what we're doing? Um, so there's a lot of um, messaging and communicating and engaging. And then, of course, there's the you know, not just individual animals, but looking at population level health. Concerns and adjustments we need to make and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's interesting. No two days are alike, um, but certainly forming and tending the relationships here is definitely one of my favorite parts.
1: That's awesome. Is it intimidating when you realize that? um you know, I mean, Vet Med is tricky to begin with, and, and there are all kinds of um, compassion fatigue issues and all kinds of stuff that I've talked a lot about on the podcast before, but like, y'all are taking care of the only platypus outside of Australia in in the world, and Chavalsky's horses, which are some of the most endangered animals in the world, and the southern white rhinos that hopefully will be a big part of bringing back the northern white rhino population. Is it Intimidating realizing, like, and the California condors where the population is doing better thanks to your facility, but like, still, like, this is all huge projects. And I, is that intimidating or are you just like, yeah, we got this? That's why we hire the best.
0: I would say more than intimidating that it's humbling. Um, we, we do the best we can to have the best people here. Um, and we had, like, a lot of places, we had a pretty big turnover with COVID. Um, and it was an opportunity to bring in some of the best and brightest from all over the world, actually. Um, not just at the, that level, but at several levels. Um, and the confidence to know, like I have never looked at a platypus CT Is this normal, but next to me on either side are six of the best new veterinarians in the world. And then a team of techs and keepers who run circles around anyone, um, we're in it together. And that's, that's what makes it doable. Um, I'd say at least once a month we take on something we've absolutely never done before. And it's all about setting each other up for success and um, working together and, and being vulnerable. You know, like (laughs) I was just telling someone the other day, there was a point in my career early on where I would read the book in my office and then go out and pretend I knew what I was doing. And now I bring the book into surgery with me and I'm like, Flip the page over. I need to see what's going on next. So I think that vulnerability and and recognizing that it is a, a huge re- responsibility and we owe it to each other to be prepared, um, you know, to learn as much as we can, learn from the past and just go boldly forward.
1: I love that. And I I assume that you can't have like, you know, a cell phone or a computer in surgery, though maybe I'm wrong. But like, how much has the availability of information online impacted y'all with having so many species that like you said, you just there isn't a lot out there. But can you find what you need now?
0: We we can. There's there's two things. Um, The access to literature is much faster. Um, Search engines Um, and, and I kind of let our residents and fellows uh, do that for me now, most of these days, but, um, we'll be talking about, we'll look at blood work together in the afternoon and be like, Oh, I don't know how high should the total billy be. And like within 10 minutes, someone can do a literature search and be like, Oh, in this case it goes up this high, you know? So the access to the literature is really helpful. Um, that's only limited by what's in the literature and zoo medicine, there's a lot that's not in the literature and that's where the second thing is access to people. Um, you know, it's, it's, just, the zoo community is, is a pretty small one. I mean, I, you know, our AZV, uh, American association of zoo veterinarians has about a thousand members. Um, but if you think about actively practicing zoo clinicians in North America, it's probably closer to 500. Um, so at this point in my career, I I could almost know anyone at any vet at any zoo and if, you know, we have a red panda problem, um we know who to talk to and with cell phones and texting you can get almost instant feedback from people. Um so that technology makes it really nice. We also have a very active listserv with AZV where young veterinarians who don't have the fortune of having individual contacts can post questions um and ask for feedback. So
1: yeah, yeah. I know. I made sure Zoe's first, I think still in vet school, I got her a membership to that. And I was just like, yeah, yeah. AAZV sounds really good. So that's it very is. cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is very cool. Um, can you tell me about just, I don't know, one interesting or weird or unique case that you've, you've seen at the safari park?
0: Oh, sure. Um,
1: As you think, I guess I just what I'm thinking is that I feel like most people hear like we're talking objectively about like big picture, like, oh, I take care of, you know, if a platypus gets sick, I have to solve it. But like, tell me about one specific, you know, a weird animal that maybe my listeners have barely even heard of or whatever. And like what you had to do to figure it out.
0: Sure. Well, if you want to go with weird animals, um, you can't get much weirder than an aardvark. (laughs) <laughs> um, cause talk about being designed by a committee. I mean, those things are crazy. And, um, we, he's, we had a, a beloved aardvark who was uh ambassador animal. So he was, um, he connected with a lot of guests and got them excited about conservation. His name was Danny. Um, and aardvarks are known for several conditions, including dental disease and that kind of thing. Um, but this was a few years ago, Danny, um, started to lose weight and act off, um, and uh, we we did a full workup on him. It took us a while, but we finally recognized that he actually had a specific kind of heart disease um, that we didn't, that wasn't in the Aardvark chapter of the <laughs> zoo book. Um, and we identified through ultrasound that he had um, fluid around his heart. Um, and we we aspirated that fluid for a diagnosis, and it was green.
1: <laughs> and mm-hmm. we were like,
0: do Aardvarks? is it supposed to be, is there a a pigment we don't know about, you know, and then you go down this rabbit hole that zoo veterinarians often do. I found this one thing in this one animal, is it normal or is it abnormal? And if it's abnormal, is it causing the problem or is it an incidental, you know, finding that doesn't mean anything. And that's where we can rely on each other and previous cases and and that kind of thing. Um, We, we finally figured out that he was actually, um, it was a fungal disease that was causing his problem um which is is common to this area but not common around the country um and it's a very long intensive treatment to to try to recover him from that and and we actually did um, but in the meanwhile we were trying to figure out how to keep him on treatment here at the hospital and how do you maintain an iv in an animal shaped like an aardvark um and and that kind of thing so he was a terrific patient he met us halfway for sure um, because he had that ambassador that comfort around people Um, but everything about aardvarks is like, you know, and there are some zoos that have a ton of aardvarks, so they are, know a lot more about what's normal. We've only had one or two here, um, at the Safari Park. So he recovered from that. He's, he was old at the time. He's, he's since passed for other reasons, but, um, but he was, it was a good kind of learning experience. It was when I was a little bit newer leader here. Um, so it was a good opportunity for me to help support people and, and help people answer questions. Um. So he was, he was fun. And then a more recent case that hit the media was, uh, Mitsuni, our, our little giraffe with the braces in the front. Um, she was, a. I was just, someone was asking me about her the other wet day. And we were also talking about the safari parks, 50th anniversary, um, which is this year. Um, you might've heard if you've ever gotten on any safari park website that it's our 50th anniversary. Might've
1: come up, (laughs) might've come up in some of the behind the scenes tours we did too. Just, just once or twice. A minute.
0: And um, <laughs> and as I speak to you, our, our San Diego team is actually going up to participate in the Rose Bowl Parade. Um, we have a float, and um, one of the giraffes on the float is to represent Mitsuni. Nice. And so thinking about our 50th year anniversary and this case, um, we she was a culmination of 50 years of veterinary expertise, ingenuity, innovation, and wildlife care expertise, where the minute we knew... We saw her on day one that one of her front legs was bending the wrong way. From our experience, we knew that this would not be fixed easily and it would require major intervention. And our wildlife care team knew that they have successfully hand-raided giraffe before. So if we had to do it, we could, although we much, much prefer they get raised by their parents, by their mothers. Um, and we were able to intervene very quickly and then work with new partners on technology to get custom braces made for her so quickly that we were able to take this rapidly growing animal and support her in a way that allowed her to grow in and almost heal herself versus continue to injure herself and set herself up for a lifetime of, you know, um, joint disease and probably a shortened life. And, and the biggest success in that is if you look at her now, you can't tell we did any of it, you know? Um, so she was, and plus she was just so dang cute in all those videos that went viral. Um, but she was a really good kind of evidence of when, when we're operating full cylinders, this is what we, we do almost on a daily basis to some degree.
1: Yeah, that is, that was such a great story. And I got to see Mitsuni when we were out there and it was just very cool to just, yeah, it's, I love stories like that. I do a weekly zoo news episode every Friday and I always try to share just the cool, like nifty, like this is what vets did to like cataract surgery on a fish, even if you don't like them or, you know, we talked about Mitsumi and yeah, I just think it's cool. Um, And I guess I have one other specific to the park question, which is how's your tree kangaroo Joey doing?
0: Um, Fine, because no one has complained to me about
1: him. Okay, good. Her.
0: I don't know what it is yet. Oh, I was just gonna um, say.
1: Oh, now I know the gender. But okay, I guess I do no, But it. okay, it yes, yes. yes. Okay, fair. Um, when I am a huge tree kangaroo fan. Oh, they and, are
0: really neat oh, animals. They're
1: so good. They're so good. And uh, when we were doing our um, one behind the scenes tour, you know, at the safari park for our honeymoon, um, it wasn't on the schedule for like you know that we did like the custom tour thing where they put it together for you, and I was like. Like hey, well we're here and we got to go back and that's when they they had all of the information about the Joey. But um, but then I was like, wait, does that say? Oh, the, oh, and Zoe was like, I think that says oh, and yeah, and and we got to find out. It was very exciting. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: yeah. Tree tree kangaroos are um really neat. Another animal that just doesn't make sense. Like, no. why are you a kangaroo and you're in a tree? Um, they um, you know, I worked on one very intensively in my residency. Um, they tend to get um more than other animals, atypical mycobacterial infections. Um, So at that point, we were doing all this novel, like drug levels and, and working with um, Jewish hospital that does all the uh, mycobacteria testing and all that. So, um, he was he was a great animal. And when I left, he was on his road to recovery. Um, so it was it was a good case. But tree kangaroos are are really neat animals.
1: They are. They're they're in my top four. And um I, I talk about them as though everybody knows what they are, even though <laughs> nobody knows what they are. Um but yeah, they're they're just incredible. As a matter of fact, you know, it's funny, you were talking about um coordinating all of the different departments and how like people who are selling tickets still need to know what y'all are doing and everything. Um I fell in love with tree kangaroos entirely entirely because when y'all got uh you opened your australia um exhibit um you did this quiz online that was what Australian animal are you? And I normally hate online quizzes, but I was like, screw it. It's the Safari Park. I'm going to do it. And, um, I got a tree kangaroo, which I had never heard of before. And so I started researching and I fell in love and I have met a few of them at different facilities now. And I have like followed like, um, you know, I, I know like Luca and Beck and all the different tree kangaroos. And it's just, it's Mm -hmm. ridiculous how much I fell in love with the species and have, you know, tried to help conservation efforts towards the species and everything and have supported uh, the tree rescue in Australia and everything, all because of a stupid online quiz, but because they did such a good job actually not only doing the quiz, but then informing about it. And Mm -hmm. I I just think that's fascinating how all the departments working together has now had an impact on tree kangaroos through me alone. And, you know, it's just there are millions of people like that with different animals every day. I just think that's really cool. That is cool. (laughs) All right. But the whole reason that we are talking is a little thing called E.E.H.V. I have had multiple people request that I do an episode on this, and it's a thing that comes up regularly in Zoo News because it's it's happening in zoos and in the wild. And and I'm just going to let you like what is E.E.H.V. And and what do we know about it? And just take take the ball. Sure. So
0: EEHV is elephant endotheliotropic herpes virus. Um, And I think when they came up with the name, they probably didn't think about how often we would be saying it because it is totally a mouthful. (laughs) Um, So um, sometimes we'll just call it elephant herpes virus. Um, uh, It is a virus um, that is limited to elephants, um, both um, African and Asian elephants. So it is not what we call zoonotic People can't get this virus from elephants, nor can any other animals. We've never um, really identified it in any other animals. So it's very specific to elephants. Um, the first the first case of EHV was diagnosed in a, a death in 1995 um, at the National Zoo. And this is this is where fate is a little weird. Um, Kumari was the first elephant to die from EHV a little bit before her second birthday. And... Um, I actually, Kamari was the first elephant I ever met when I was doing behind the scenes stuff at National Zoo. Um, she had, she was only a couple months old when I met her. Um, that was my first ever elephant experience was being able to reach through the bars and touch her trunk and, and meet her mom too. Um, elephant, um, handling and access was a little bit different back then. So that wasn't illegal. It was just the way things were done. Um, and then when I was in college, my mom sent me a clipping that baby Kumari died of some mysterious illness, you know. And then, you know, fast forward, well, from college, 20, 30 years later, um, this is a disease that I've, I've dedicated a huge chunk of my life to. So it's just funny how things happen. Um, but uh, so since that time, um, the virus identified. um We've had a, a little around 40 cases of EHV in Asian elephants in North America. Um, and by North America, I largely mean um, mainly the U.S. and some elephant-holding institutions in Canada as well. Um, and we've lost um, about two-thirds of those animals to EHV. Um, our fatality rate, once a case is diagnosed, is, it goes between... 65 and 75 percent depending on on the year um and, and how the math works um th- when you look at what elephants under 30 die of in north america EHV is the leading cause of, of death in these elephants and the hard part is is it's elephants between like one and eight years of age that are most likely to die and those are elephants that don't even get a chance to grow up and be elephants They don't get a chance to become reproductive. They don't get a chance to contribute to the next generation. Um, So losing elephants at that age, um, it it has impacted um, sustainability of our elephant populations here in North America. It's not the only thing, um, but it's definitely one of the things. And we recognize that. And as a very passionate, dedicated zoo community, we've been working on EHV pretty much since Kumari died in 1995. And I joined the fray in um, 2005, about 10 years later when I when I joined the staff at the Houston Zoo. Um, so it is a virus, it's a herpes virus. Um, Can I like pause many, you there
1: for a second? Sorry, yeah. just so I think to the lay person, and by that I mean, a drummer slash podcast host. Um, You know, herpes generally means either an STD or the cold sore variant. But can mm-hmm. you go into a little bit more what it means that it's a herpes virus? And is this a, an STD or is it a contact transmission thing? Like if they all drink from the same cup, will they get it like a cold sore? Like, how, how does that work?
0: That's a great question, John. And I, I will say my nickname is the herpes queen. And my mother <laughs> is so proud And I've used the word herpes in Christmas cards, also a highlight for my family. Um, So it is important to recognize there's a stigma around the word herpes and herpes viruses, so much to the point that in the early days, if we put herpes virus in the subject line of some emails, it will get rejected. Um, So we've come a long way. Um, Herpes virus is very common in all species. Um, Humans, you probably have... I don't know, three to five circulating herpes viruses in your system right now. Um, Epstein-Barr is is a herpes virus. Um, There's a lot of herpes viruses that are very common to domestic animals. They're not all sexually transmitted. Um, There are a lot of different ways to acquire herpes viruses. Um, There's a herpes virus that impacts both domestic cats as well as cheetahs. That's a respiratory um, ocular impact. Um, And they can be traded or shared between animals different ways. Um, it's taken a a lot of research, um, for us to better understand the transmission in elephants. And we've identified that elephants shed herpes virus through their trunk secretions most commonly. And if you've seen elephants with each other, they're like toddlers with their hands with their trunks. Um, they use their trunks to explore each other, um, to communicate, um, to, to do all kinds of stuff. So there's a lot of trunk secretion sharing between elephants. Um, We have looked into if it's sexually transmitted from elephant to elephant, and we have no proof that that's true. Um, We think um, the natural transmission from trunk secretions is probably the most common, common thing. And with all the work that's gone into evaluating herpes virus, we've looked at it molecularly, and we have some brilliant people who've looked at the evolution of this virus. And these viruses have evolved with these elephants for millions of years. Um, Because when herpes virus really came on the scene in the late 90s, 2000s, there was a lot of concern that it leapt from African elephants to Asian elephants, which is actually um, not unreasonable considering what we know about herpes virus and other animal species. Um, There's herpes viruses in, say, macaques, um, an Asian kind of monkey, that can kill even people or other monkeys of other, um, you know, other areas and other geographic areas. Um, In the case of elephants, we were completely wrong. Um, So we actually started out wrong about herpes virus. And it's a great reminder um, to always, you know, take the information as you have and, and draw your best conclusions. I mean, that's basically the bumper sticker for zoo medicine, but also reevaluate, reevaluate, collect more data and go back to the drawing board and and see if you're still right. Also, the second bumper sticker for zoo medicine for the other side of the bumper. Um, So, um, so yeah, so from everything we know, elephants have lived with herpes virus for millions of years. And any elephant that we check their chunk secretions long enough, um, because they shed it intermittently, it's not constant, we'll find it in them. So it's normal for healthy, it's normal and healthy for elephants to have herpes virus in their system, just like you have some and I have some and all the people walking around here have herpes virus in their system. The question is, what is it about this virus that causes acute hemorrhagic death in young elephants? And that's the problem. Um, We are losing baby elephants. And because the elephants, it's like working on a giant rock. You know, they they like, it's even hard to tell if an elephant has a bruise because of their skin. If they have swelling, it's hard to tell. They're very stoic animals. Um, they're very smart animals. So, and a smart animal, if it's not feeling well, is going to hide that um, because it doesn't want to be, um, well, if it's a prey animal, it doesn't want to be eaten. An elephant doesn't want to be picked on by its herd mates, you know. So by the time we know this virus is wreaking havoc on the inside of the elephant, um, it's almost too late if we, it is too late if we wait till the elephant tells us it's sick. Um, so our first 15 years of, 20 years of research was how do we diagnose this early so we can intervene and try to treat the elephant before it's past the point of no return. And that's an area where our 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 EHV zoo community has really shown and um, has really stepped up to identify this is how we can find it early, and as soon as we find it, this is what we need to do. So that's kind of the, probably the best advances we've had on the elephant side. And then we've also come a huge way in diagnosis and in um, serology and immunology and understanding elephant response to herpes virus. Um, So it's, when you're in vet school and you're reading these books about these viruses, you know, it, it, you think, oh, this is boring. But it's really interesting to be involved in the writing of the book about the virus because we're learning as we go. And that's another great thing about veterinary medicine and particularly zoo medicine is there's all these challenges and these things out there that we just don't know yet. And that any one of us, if if we put in a little elbow grease can help help kind of try to figure it out.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. Very, very interesting. Um, so, you've been working on trying to figure out how to tell whether an elephant has this or not. What, where are we at with that?
0: So, what we know about herpes virus, and we know the most about it in Asian elephants. Um, our 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 knowledge in, of herpes virus in African elephants is about ten years behind that of Asian elephants. But we're doing a lot of work, particularly here at San Diego, which I can tell you a little bit more about later, to catch up and close that gap in knowledge. Um, so most of the, the known stuff about herpes virus and elephants relates to Asian elephants. So we know that um, baby elephants are born without the virus, but they are born with the antibodies to the virus that they get from their mom through the placenta. Um, and it's very, I don't know in the US that we have found a case where a baby elephant has died before a year of age. So we know that initially, if the mom has high antibodies, the baby has high antibodies, and they're protected from death due to EHV. And somewhere between like one and eight years of age, their immunity wanes. And we think in a natural setting, all that trunk exposure and trunk excretions from the adults they get exposed to the virus when they do still have some of their maternal immunity, um, and they can handle the virus. And then the virus kind of settles in their system and they now have the virus for the rest of their lives and they'll shed it intermittently. That's what's supposed to happen. But in some of these elephants, for the reasons we don't know, but we're getting closer to, um, when they get that virus that first time, their immune system can't control it and it it takes over, um, the virus is called endothelial herpes virus because it attacks attacks the endothelial cells which line the blood vessels. So it causes widespread internal bleeding. Um, and that's really hard to tell from the outside, because bru- like I said, even bruising is hard to see. So we actually have to, you know, look at their mouths, the inside of their mouths, to see if there's bruising there, because it's hard to tell in the in the rest of their skin. Um, and once that virus starts replicating. Then the amount of virus in the blood can leap, grow by logs of 10. Um, And then um, the elephant kind of goes into a state of almost shock um, where circulatory shock, like they don't have enough blood in their vessels to pump oxygen around. And then they can actually become what we call hypoxemic um, or cyanotic uh, where their tongue gets blue. Um, And then they eventually collapse from from a, a heart heart failure. So it's it's not good. And it can all happen in 24 to 48 hours from the time you first notice an elephant looks a little bit off. So what we've realized is we can find the virus in their blood. And the virus is actually in their blood for up to two weeks before they actually get sick. Um, so our stopgap for now is that we, in these at-risk elephants from one to eight years of age, we actually recommend weekly blood collection just to see if the virus is there. And sometimes the virus is there and it's normal. So we watch the levels and we look at how their white blood cells are. Are they healthy? Um, and sometimes it's fine and it stays low and that's normal, or sometimes it shoots up and then we come you know sirens blazing with all of our many intensive treatments that we we perform
1: and talk to me about those treatments what what have y'all found and and what's the success rate and and all of that stuff
0: so we we do recommend, as an advisory group for elephants in North America, we do recommend treating with an antiviral. Um, there's a, a couple to choose from. Famcyclovir or Famvir is most common, um, commonly used. And these are elephant sites doses. Um, so the best thing is to send your technician down to the corner CVS and ask him to have every single herpes virus pill in the whole store. Um, cause that's kind of embarrassing cause everyone assumes he has some kind of condition.
1: I mean, this um, sounds like a joke. I'm waiting for you to be like, no, John, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but you're not kidding. That's what you need to do. Right. I mean, that sounds mm-hmm. ridiculous to me. Is it just because there are so few elephants in captivity that like, um, you know, Merck and Pfizer and stuff aren't making elephant specific drugs or like, why, why is that what you need to do?
0: Well, actually, that's not what you should do. That's what we did in the early days. And then we realized, if you have elephants at risk, you need to have enough famcyclovir to treat all of them at the same time, because that's usually what happens, and it's usually a three-day holiday weekend um, (laughs) on on your shelf. And at one point, before it went generic, famcyclovir was really expensive. So that was about $10,000 worth of antivirals on your shelf, just waiting best case scenario, it expires and you never use it because you never had a sick elephant. Now it's come way down. It's still several thousand dollars in the grand scheme of how much it costs to take care of an elephant. It's it's not, um, it shouldn't be cost prohibitive for any any zoo that's caring for elephants. So it, it's, it's pretty much standard of care to have enough FAMCyclovir available. And it's the same pills people take, but it's 80 or 90 of them at a shot. Um, that said, um, One of, with all the advances we've made, we have not been able to grow the virus in the laboratory, in culture. Lots of smart people all over the country have tried lots of ways. I understand it took them 20 years to grow, was it cytomegalovirus? Some other virus. So we haven't given up. But what that means is we can't just do a lab test to see if famcyclovir kills the virus. So we don't actually have any laboratory proof that it's effective against the virus, We have done studies to show that when you give this amount of famcyclovir to an elephant, it does get converted into the active metabolite and it's circulating in the blood. Um, So we still recommend it, um, but it's like one of those things we just don't have the evidence we need. Um, And until we have evidence it doesn't work, we we use it. Um, Fluids are really, really important in keeping elephants hydrated. And one thing we've learned is the Tremendous absorptive capacity of the elephant rectum. Um, it is the best organ in the world, and um, you can put a lot of fluid into an elephant rectum, and it'll absorb it. And um, and and actually, if you do it several times in a row, it can really help to rehydrate the elephant and make it feel better. Um, so uh, rectal fluids are um, a hallmark and. We have been advocating for the absorptive capacity of the elephant rectum for many years, and everyone's on board. In fact, this is an easy enough procedure. It doesn't require a veterinary expertise. Our, our, our elephant keepers are very, very good at this. Um, so we do a lot of rectal fluids and famcyclovir is our first line of defense. And then these other things that we've developed over the years, um, plasma transfusions from other elephants to give the sick elephant clotting factors and proteins and albumin and maybe even antibodies to the virus that came from the donor elephant. Um, We're using mesenchymal stem cells, um, which have been shown in domestic animals to to combat sepsis and inflammation. Um, So those are given. Um, We have a lot of supportive things, vitamin C, vitamin E, um, omeprazole, which helps with gastric ulceration. Um, We do... um, Antibiotics is a secondary backup in case because their white cells are so low, they might get a secondary infection. Um, and then there's some new stuff that we're, we uh, are working on with criticalists or veterinarians whose whole job is to take care of very, very critical, sick, domestic, basically dogs and cats. Um, like amino acid, which is a very scary drug, but it can really help an animal with a certain clotting issue. But it can hurt an animal with a different clotting issue, so we have to figure out which issue our elephants have before we use drugs like that. Um, so all of this is when an elephant is sick from EHV, it's a twenty-four hour, two-week endeavor minimum, because um, the best way to get those antivirals is every eight hours, and that means our our elephant care staff is coming in around the clock um, to give antivirals and rectal fluids. Um, and then the plasma and those treatments usually need to be given when an elephant's sedated. Um, so that means a sedation procedure once a day, sometimes twice a day, sometimes every other day. Um, so uh, many times, even in a zoo like ours, um, where we have six veterinarians and eight vet techs, everything grinds to a halt when an elephant is sick with EHV. And the most critical other animals are cared for and then everyone's all hands on um, when, on the elephant. So it's, it impacts the entire organization.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That is, wow. That is a lot, a lot. Um, oh, fascinating. Uh, I'm curious, um, you know, when, when, when an animal does, uh, pass because of EEHV is, is there a way, is it, you know, are these elephants being collected and researched and is that going to a general knowledge bank? How, how does that work?
0: That's a a great question. Um, Pretty much any elephant that dies in a a zoo in the U.S. gets a complete necropsy, which is what we call an autopsy for animals. Autopsy is self-study, necropsy, study of death. Um, Now, this is where the North American EHV advisory group comes in. We're a group of somewhere around 28 to 32 um, subject matter experts on EHV, um, veterinarians, elephant care specialists, conservationists, virologists, communication specialists. Um, we were established in 2014, and so we we just came up on our eight-year anniversary. Um, together, we help identify the research priorities, and we help sort of shepherd all the, the studies and stuff going on. And when there's a a request for samples, hey, if I could get this tissue from an elephant that just died of EHV, I may be able to grow the virus. We kind of help shepherd that along with the elephant taxon advisory group, um, which is a part of AZA and it's, you know, led by elephant care leaders. Um, So between us and the taxon advisory group, uh, we help to make sure that um, all of these research requests are in the hands of elephant care institutions. So in the unlikely but possible event that they have an EHV case or an EHV death, that they are collecting samples. And it's a big ask. Having been in my own EHV cases, the last thing you want to do is collect another vial of blood or dissect this out or whatever. Um but that's what's great about our community. As far as the zoo folks and the EHV folks, we recognize this is the only way we're going to move forward is to learn. And losing an elephant is devastating. Uh, and then having to follow up with all of the research requests and making sure people get the information, it's, it's soul sucking, but people do it because it's so important to learning and, and getting us to that next step.
1: That makes sense. Um, I know from doing Zoo News earlier this year that the, if I remember correctly, it's the Chester Zoo is working on or was working on, I'm not sure how this has gone, which is why I'm asking you, but not one, but uh, two vaccines, one of which was a um, modified vaccine, a virus Ankara, and one of which was a protein-based one. W- would you talk me through that, where that's at, if they're working, and maybe even what the difference between the two are?
0: Sure. I'm going to do my best here. Um, but I, I do leave some of that um, molecular, uh, that uh, vaccine stuff to our, our colleagues. So there's several parallel efforts um, to create an EHV vaccine. And the first EHV we're trying to do is EHV1, which is the most devastating virus to Asian elephants. Um, and we, people know a lot more about vaccines now since COVID. It's not going to prevent all disease, but hopefully it'll prevent serious disease and death, much like some of the COVID vaccines we've had. Um so Chester Zoo is working uh with the university and they have developed um a prototype vaccine and the last I checked in with them which was admittedly several months ago they were using it in adult animals as a safety study to look for reactions uh any problems that kind of thing um and the, we are working in parallel in the US um with uh Baylor College of Medicine in Texas is leading is leading this work and they are also taking the approach of two different types of vaccine, both like a, a subunit genetic vaccine and then the, the vaccinia pox vaccine. Um, the reason they're both groups are taking um, uh, parallel approaches is because it's really hard to predict which vaccine is going to create the best response. And there's such an urgency here that to just try one. Um, and not two at once. If you pick the wrong one, then it sets you back a couple of years. And in talking with vaccine development experts who've done this in many years, both for animals and people, um, sometimes one of those will be better as the initial response and one of them will be better as like the backup, the second booster dose, Um, much like they're now telling us to swap our our COVID vaccines around. Um, And if we could grow the virus in the lab, we could have another option for making an actual vaccine based on the virus, which is how some vaccines are made, but not all of them. Um, But we can't do that. And what technology has allowed us to do is to create these two other other avenues um, to to create the vaccine. Um, So uh, Chester's definitely um, out in front and doing amazing work with their elephants. And then here in the U.S., um, Baylor College of Medicine is, is right behind them and doing similar stuff. Um, And it's actually probably good that we have them going on on both continents, um, because when we talk about what kind of vaccine to develop, um, moving animal parts, especially parts with elephant in it across even state lines, never mind um, international lines, is restricted for a lot of good reasons to reduce poaching and animal trade. But the likelihood that we could create a vaccine and get it to Europe is very, very low because of the permitting and and all that. Um, so we kind of need to do this parallel work and everyone's working together really nicely and sharing information.
1: Well, that's very cool. And that's good to hear. Um, And, you know, I want one of the things that I really want to make the point of here is um, I feel like I hear from the anti-captivity crowd that, you know, a lot of people, even people that aren't opposed to to zoos in general, are in that crowd for certain animals. And elephants often fall into that category. Uh, One reason being that there are some studies or arguments that suggest that elephants in captivity actually have a lower lifespan than in the wild you <laughs> Um, but I, my take on that has always been how, how do we really know that? And like, do we understand the effects of something like E.E.H.V. in the wild? Can you can you account for something like that? Whereas in the captive population, that's going to really destroy numbers when you've got Emily, the elephant at Buttonwood Park Zoo, who's in her 60s. But then you have another elephant who dies, you know, at the age of one because of E.E.H.V. And that's just not accounted for in the record keeping in the wild. Is, is that accurate or my way off here?
0: That, that's accurate, and we get into tricky situations trying to evaluate lifespans for all of our zoo animals, and people often take, you know, the elephant in Northern California that's 72 as all elephants should get to 72, and then even in human calculating lifespan, um, infant mortality, young mortality brings that down in a different way than what people probably interpret it as, um, so lifespans are tricky. Um And I've actually talked with colleagues at Kruger National Park who are brilliant and doing a lot of amazing stuff, um, and have asked, can we can we look at parallel cohorts between Kruger and animals in in North America? And 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 measuring lifespan in them is very challenging because they're not all identified. You know, these are there's lots of elephants. It's hard to get a hold of them. So no one really knows. Um, What I can tell you about EHV is um, it is present in elephants all over the world. Um, It's been identified in elephants in most of the Asian range countries that elephants live in. Um, And we have been looking at it and for it in in Africa. Um, And we know that healthy elephants in Africa shed EHV. Um, So we know that. Um, What we haven't been able to really um, document very, very well is the impact of EHV on the health of wild elephants. Um now we have a a brilliant colleague in India who when he was younger spent a lot of time traipsing through um some of the really large jungles in India where those huge contiguous populations of Indian elephants are and he was actually able to find um baby young elephants in the wild who died of EHV it took a tremendous amount of resources um and what he would find is a herd and follow them for a while And if he found one elephant that died of EHV, he'd keep following the herd, and eventually he might find another one. Um, So it's really hard to find those elephants in the jungle and get to them in time and sample them to confirm that they've died of any infectious disease, including EHV. Um, So we have been uh, applying our resources to better understanding the epidemiology of the virus and also how to fix it in animals that we do find it in versus being able to pour a lot of resources into better understanding what it does in range countries. But we do know that elephants who have never been under human care, have never interacted with a caretaker or or another captive elephant, have died from EHV hemorrhagic disease. Um, so it is not caused by something associated with being under human care, which is very important um, for people to understand, because as you mentioned The people out there who have made their own personal feeling or decision that elephants don't belong under human care shouldn't think that EHV is a reason for that um, because it's not. In fact, the work that we've done to learn everything I've told you about EHV today and everything we've learned has been learned from elephants under human care in North America and a little bit in Europe and definitely in Asia. Um, and without that information, we wouldn't be where we are today, we wouldn't be able to save elephants.
1: I love that. That's awesome. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about this this disease or the efforts to curtail it, or just things that I'm not smart enough to ask? <laughs>
0: um, I will say we we have come a really long way in the 27 years um, you know since since we first diagnosed this disease. We have a tremendous way to go. Um, And what we're focusing on now is that immunity and that immune response. And now that we've identified these elephants with a poor immune response, why do they have that and how can we bolster it? Vaccine is definitely a big thing we're going to be focusing on in the next five years, as well as other risk factors. Um, I think we're not going to save every elephant right now, but I hope in another 10 years we will and that you know these, these colleagues, these friends I've made all over the world working on this virus, that we'll just get together for beers instead of meeting to talk about EHV. Um, and we'll talk about um, the good old days when we, we were trying to figure it all out. Um, I think the commitment that elephant care institutions across the world have made to understanding this virus is huge. And not just the elephant samples, but all of the funding to support all this research has been garnered by these zoos, either through their own operational expenses, through grants they've gotten, or even through donations they've gotten through very, very generous donors, then this work wouldn't be possible without them. Um, so it's, it's a terrible disease. And it is terrible to see what this virus does to baby elephants. Um, the silver lining is the collaborative partnership that has happened all over the world in these like-minded individuals who want to understand this virus and save elephants is tremendous. And we actually have so many things to show for it um, of all the things that we've learned. And it's, it's very, uh, I'm very optimistic that we'll continue to go, go on that route for another 10 years until we get this thing figured out and then move on to whatever else the next thing is that's um, threatening elephants.
1: Awesome. 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 I love it. I love it all so much. It's so inspiring knowing all this stuff is happening. And you know, I always tell zoos this and I'll, I'll tell you this too. You should, you should tell PR people this. You know, I might be the biggest San Diego zoo and safari park and wildlife alliance fan out there. I promote y'all every chance I get. My wife is a fan of you in particular and your facility in general, just like the work done there. It it is her dream to eventually be a vet at your facility. I'm just going to say it because it's true. And I don't know how much she knew about the EEHV work being done there, but I – didn't know about it at all. And I just I know that it's important to put out cute pictures of giraffes and stuff. And, and it is. And it, and I think that the the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance does a good job sharing conservation messaging and the stories of cool giraffe, you know, leg thingies I'm blanking on the name right now and braces that's it and all of those things but uh, I just wish that more of this was promoted because oftentimes when people come into my feed see I have a unique take on on the anti-captivity people a little bit because when people come into my feed they're like oh you get paid for from zoos and you work at zoos I'm like no No, no. And I've called zoos out on things, good zoos out on things when I've seen it before and nicely and tried to work with them. But like I'm an outsider and I'm because of that, people are a little more willing to listen to me sometimes. And when I share these kinds of stories, I'm amazed. I mean, look, there are some people who you just can't talk to, but there are people who I talk to who come in with a, you know, F zoos attitude and are like, oh. No, I didn't know that about the California condor. No. Oh, no, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know this research was done at zoos. That's fascinating. And I just I wish that this was more common knowledge, which, of course, is why we're doing the podcast. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I hope that uh, more of this information gets out from all zoos, um, you know, and and as you coordinate with your teams, you should tell them I said that
0: <laughs> I will. And I will do a 90 second elevators pitch on our work here because I forgot to mention that. Um in 2019, African elephants um, in the U.S. started dying from EHV, and it had always been a, primarily an Asian elephant thing. So we're we're learning some things are the same, and some things are very different in African elephants. And that's where we've come in at the Safari Park. We have a very healthy, robust, multi-generational herd of African elephants. We've partnered with um, Sedgwick Park, uh, Reed Park Zoo, and, of course, San Diego Zoo, downtown um, on sampling elephants to better understand the bio, the basic biology of African EHV and how it differs from Asian EHV. And our care staff, our technicians, our clinical lab staff, our molecular disease um, diagnostic lab staff have all embraced this extra work um, to, to help our elephants, help us, help all elephants um, through better characterization of, of what EHV is actually doing in normal healthy African elephants as a baseline to know how it impacts, um, elephants when it actually makes them sick. Um, so San Diego has really stepped up. And, um, I thought when I was leaving Houston and coming to San Diego, I was going to step away from EHB and then the virus followed me for better or for worse. So, um, we're really proud of the work we're doing here. And it's, it's really nice because it's transdisciplinary. It includes a little bit of every skill. And I, and I would, would say to anyone who might not have a affection for zoos is to understand that those of us who choose to dedicate our lives to the care of zoo animals, um, we're here every day taking care of the animals, learning, making mistakes, learning again, taking care of each other um, to do the best by these animals. And and it really, we do that every day regardless of how they feel. Um, But it is a true honor and a privilege to be in the position we're in to be able to care for these animals. Um, and, and we'll
1: keep doing it. I love that. And, um, before we get to the more ridiculous question that I have for you, um, I just was wondering if you could talk about wild animal health fund briefly. Um, so that's actually how we connected. Um, I know Carolyn at the, uh, wild animal health fund and have done an episode featuring, uh, W a H F that's just harder to say than wild animal health fund. Um, And I just, I love them and the work that they do. And I I want to thank them and just kind of remind my listeners that they exist. And and can you talk about how they're helping with this problem?
0: Sure. Um, The Wild Animal Health Fund is a tremendous resource to um, not just zoo veterinarians, but zoo animals and conservationists. Um, There's very few opportunities um, for us to get funding for research that clinically helps the animals we're caring for right now. Um, a lot of the research is more um, benchtop or esoteric. Um, but what the Wild Animal Health Fund does is recognize, I have this problem to solve. I need $10,000 to do it. Where am I going to get the money? And they step right in. And what's what's great is it's um, supported by the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians and tons of tremendous donors that um, are growing. Um, and um, all of the, the research grant requests that come in are evaluated by groups of zoo veterinarians who understand the problems and what's most pressing and what needs funding. So it's it's just been great and it's been very rewarding to see this program grow over the last 10 years. For EHB, um, I've actually lost count of how many ways the Wellcome Health Fund has helped us. They have helped fund development of one of our serology assays, which is really getting to the nitty-gritty of this immunity question in elephants. They've also funded um, a, a way to detect the virus in post-mortem tissues of elephants in a new way that helps us not just say the elephant had EHV, but which tissues had the virus and which ones are most impacted, which help us a lot when we're trying to figure out how to treat it. Um, the, the Wild Animal Hump Fund also has supported our work here at African Elephant EHV closing the gap and trying to understand, like I just mentioned, the biology differences in the virus between African and, and Asian elephants. And they also um, assisted with some of our work um, looking at detecting EHV in elephants in South Africa and Kruger National Park. Um, and knowing that healthy elephants in Kruger shed EHV really helps us understand where EHV is in the global scale of African elephant health. Um, and I'm sure I've forgotten one, but that's just in the last few years. Um, and this is in addition to all the other tremendous work that Wild Animal Health Fund has supported. Um, and they're just a great group of people. And um, like I said, AZV is a, a small community, and it's it's nice that others are helping us and, and that we're actually helping ourselves, too.
1: Awesome. Thank you for that. And now to completely, uh, you know, change the tone. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show, but there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, "Oh no!" It's time for the Ron Safari poop story.
0: <laughs> I think a poop-related story is probably most appropriate, um, so it meets with your expectations. <laughs> um, and I close my eyes and I I picture how I looked um the day after, or the day that Baylor was born. Um, so, Baylor is an African elephant who was born at the Houston Zoo. And he was actually named after Baylor College of Medicine for all the work they've been doing. Um, and in his case, um, right after he was born, he needed some human assistance to get to his feet um, and make sure he was stable so that he could then go meet his mom and nurse and start his amazing life as an elephant. Um, and our elephant care teams and our veterinarians are very skilled at this aspect. Um, But it is a messy, sloppy aspect because of meconium. Um, And meconium is that first fecal that a baby passes. Um, And it's tarry and sticky and dark and very hard to get out of your clothes and your hair, uh, which I can tell you from personal experience. (laughs) Um, Because after Baylor was born, uh, we did a veterinary assessment on him. We were able to collect samples from him. Right away, which helped inform some of our very important work about EHV immunology, including that he had antibodies not from the milk, but from the placenta, which is, is very important to know. Um, and he's also this adorable 100 some odd pound baby um, without handles. Uh, baby elephants don't have handles, they're just a big lump with legs and a, a trunk. Um, so a team of us who had been there all night waiting for him to be born, um, little sleep deprived, but super excited. And on this like emotional adrenaline high, we're in there in the stall with him safely separated, um, from his mom so that she wasn't endangered us. We weren't in danger to her getting him on his feet. And, uh, he just, I was somehow, I, I actually think the elephant, curator did this on purpose i was in the back end trying to kind of lift him up from between his legs and he just passed his meconium all over me from chin to shoes um and he was slipping in it and i was slipping in it and and you know i'm i'm not a girly girl like i'm like i can handle this i'm not gonna make a big deal about it i'm trying to get it off my face (laughs) And everyone else is helping Baylor up, and um, we did get him on his feet. Uh, We made sure he was stable. Um, We eventually backed off, and he went and nursed from his mom, which was a success in itself because um, she had a history of not always taking her babies, and our elephant care team had done a lot of work with her. And then I stepped back, and everyone else is freaking clean as a whistle. (laughs) And I was a poop sandwich. Um, And... I think throughout my career, I've ended up at the back end of a lot of animals, Um, but that was like, I still remember how sticky it was and how it like, it took a lot. So, but how many people can say that they got to be covered in a newborn baby elephant's poop? You know? Not
1: not many, not many.
0: So that's my poop story. Poop story.
1: I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for taking the time to get the information out there about EHV. Um, I think having folks understand what the virus actually is, how far we've come and what we're doing to better understand it is really important um, rather than just kind of knee-jerk reaction to something they see online. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity.
1: Thank you. Ah, That was so much fun. I am so happy that I get to have members of the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance on my podcast. It's so meaningful to me. Um, I remember when I first started this podcast, I just couldn't help but hope that one day. I would be able to make this into a big enough and trusted enough thing that San Diego would hop on board. And now they have multiple times and it's so cool. And Dr. Howard is so cool. And I know, I know, I'm totally fanboying right now. But I mean, hey. If you're going to be a fan of somebody or someplace, make it somebody in place that is having as much of a difference and doing as many cool things as the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance and Dr. Lauren Howard. I'm just saying. And um, hey, I wanted to take a moment to say thank you to uh, my Red Panda level patrons, Laura Shank and Kristen Dickey. Uh, so you can become a patron and help support this podcast for as little as $3 a month and Um, If you sign up for that, you get things like, oh, I don't know, really cool bonus audio, which this episode has. Um, I actually uh, talked to Dr. Howard at the beginning about uh, Zoe, my wife who is a vet and uh, her career and got some career advice. And we talked about the vet field and it was just a kind of interesting primer for all of that. And so uh, I'm going to let you all listen in on that. And it's, it's pretty cool and pretty exciting. And I also want to say thank you again to all of our friends at the Wild Animal Health Fund. Please make sure that you are supporting this very, very important organization. Uh, They will, they will take your money and give it to good places and good um, studies and help animals with health stuff it's it's wildly important and and you should be checking it out and uh donating if you can i'll have links to everything in the show notes um but it's just so great you know again just all these cool places that are part of the Safari family now i just i love it all so much all right y'all uh here is my final thing to tell you the word credits backwards Is Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Rossi. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at Rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.